Welcome to Bakersfield First Assembly of God's podcast. Pastor James is fired up and ready to preach. I hope you enjoy this sermon. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Galatians. We're winding down. We're almost there. And stand firm in your freedom is our, the theme for our study. It's the, the theme for the book of Galatians. It is for freedom that God has set us free. Last week, we finished up on the fruit of the Spirit. Boy, that took forever. Almost lost patience, which is one of the fruit of the Spirit. We finished up with the fruit of self-control, and that's exercising mastery over one's will and exerting control over one's mind. So it's the will and the mind and ultimately the emotions. That's what self-control benefits, the, the, that we have authority over our thought life, that we have uh, authority over our will, conform it to the Lord's will. And if we do those two things, then we will have freedom in our emotions and in our physical, our, our uh, feeling state. Throughout the Bible, God showed self-control by relenting. He could have wiped nations out and he relented. And God usually showed, he relented when there was repentance. When a nation or a people repented, then God exercised self-control and did not destroy. And that by nature, he always exhibits self-control. So patient. Waits hundreds of years sometimes before he brings judgment. Self-control is synonymous with having rule over one's spirit. And it's part of a process of personal discipline. We have the spiritual disciplines of reading the scripture and fasting. And all of those spiritual disciplines help us develop self-control. Fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines that I like the least. Anybody with me? You know, I just, I, there are times God has called me to fast. The longest fast I ever did was a, a week on just water. And boy, I, that was tough because like I spent most of the week just in bed groaning. <laughs> so, but I'll tell you, if you can gain control over your appetite, that's pretty good self-control, right? So it's... Uh, you know, that, that's one of the challenges. I, some, I'm on again, off again on the, uh, which one of those diets? The, uh, not keto, it's, it's the guy that, Adkins, thank you. Adkins diet right there. See, I hear it works better for men than for women, but there's just something about carbs. They are the best tasting thing in the world. Now, I'm, I, I like the Adkins diet because you can eat meat and a pound of butter and, it's, you know, that's all part of it. But after a while, I just, you know, I'm tired of eating, I can't believe I'm saying this, tired of eating meat. I want, you know, pie and stuff like that. Glory to God. But self-control, boy, if you can, and that's what fasting is all about. If you can control your appetite, you can control any other part of your body or your soul. And so that's part of the, the purpose of the discipline of fasting. Self-control is a qualification for spiritual leadership. We got to keep that in mind. And it also enables us to pray effectively. We need self control to stay awake during our prayer. And self control empowers us to resist Satan. When we have the fruit of self control, the enemy does, cannot get a foothold in our life. So, self control, at first we look at self control as something miserable, but it's really something great. If we can learn, and develop the fruit of the spirit of self-control, our lives will be better. That's the thing about the fruit of the spirit. 
It not only blesses God, it benefits us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of those things come back to us as blessings. And self-control keeps us from Satan's power. It helps us to pray. It's all of those things. Tonight we're going to talk about crucified or conceited. Wow, that's, that's an interesting contrast. Galatians 5.23b says in the NIV, against, against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So I've done the outline a little differently tonight. We're going to look at the verse in all five translations. I love doing this as a Bible study. It's not, if you're just doing your regular devotions, it's good just to have one translation. But if you want to do some Bible study, it's, it's great to get an interlinear Bible with multiple translations. And we, there's just many facets of that scripture and of that truth that we can find as we put them together. So we're going to read through each translation, see how it says, words it just a little differently. Verse 23 in the NIV, against such things there is no law. King James. I, I grew up memorizing the King James, and so now I have like half NIV, half King James when I try to quote scripture. King James, against such there is no law. Very similar. The Amplified Bible, which again is not a translation, it's a paraphrase, but it goes a little deeper into the Greek and Hebrew. And so it says, against such things there is no law. There's the bracket. It's a little more definition that can bring a charge against you. If you break the law, you get charged with a crime. There is no law against these things. No law. Uh, in the New Living Translation, that was Pentecostal. No law. The Message Bible, MSG, legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. I, I love the Message Bible. Again, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. But it just puts it in our modern vernacular. Uh, so clearly, because that's what Paul is talking about. The law equals legalism. Now, the law really meant something to the Jewish Christians. They understood that. But for us that are Gentile Christians, we understand it more as legalism. And legalism does not bring this about. And what is that about such things? Number one, such things is referring to the fruit of the Spirit. So it's referring back against the fruit of the Spirit, there's no law. The, the fruit of the Spirit can never be sinful. It's, there's no law against it. So it's all in the context of the passage we just studied on the acts of the sinful nature versus the fruit of the Spirit. And so we are to exchange one for the other. We, we studied the acts of the sinful nature. And then it, go, it carries us into the fruit of the Spirit. And so... The point is not just to stop the acts of the sinful nature. It's to replace them with the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, no, it's much easier to, to replace a bad habit with another good habit. That's one way to break a bad habit. Just trying to go cold turkey on your own is not as successful as replacing it with something positive. Letter A. Because love, joy, peace, and etc. can never be wrong or evil... There's no law against them. Love will always be good. Peace 
is always something that is beneficial to us. All of the, these fruit of the Spirit can never be bad. It can never be wrong. How many know you can never go wrong loving someone? Now, we studied love because love must be tough sometimes. Love sets a standard. So love brings accountability. Love does not rejoice in evil. And so when we really love somebody, it, it, can, never, it can never be bad in the biblical sense of how the Lord means it. Love, joy. Joy can never be wrong. There's, you can never be legal. It's never legalistic. It's liberating. Letter B, in addition, legalism through observance to the law will never produce the fruit of the Spirit. This is important to understand. The law never draws us closer to the Lord in relationship. The purpose of the law was to show us what sin is. This is right, this is wrong. But the law called us sinners, but it never saved us. It couldn't save us. And so the fruit of the Spirit should never be legalistic. It should be free of all that. Legalism in its different forms. How many of you have lived under legalism in, in some way, shape, or form throughout your Christian journey or your family? No? Yep. And, and, it's, and there, are, there are some... Uh, some <laughs> we, will, we won't name too many, uh, but we'll, we'll name a few. But... I experienced legalism at times, and, and sometimes it made no sense. And the legalism doesn't bring us closer to the Lord. It actually puts distance between us because, we, yeah, it's a, it's a wedge because we can't do it on our own. So look at Romans chapter 7, 4 through 6. Again, to show us the difference between the law or the letter. It's another name for the, le the law. And the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 4, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. There's the fruit. You can't bear the fruit of the Spirit through the law. It's the antithesis of that. Verse 5, for when we were, when we were controlled by the sinful nature, all those things that we'd studied about the sinful nature, sexual immorality, envy, all of those things we studied. We were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore, the, bore fruit for death. Paul says he didn't know certain things were wrong until the law told him that it was wrong. And he didn't want those things until he was told he couldn't have them. Isn't that human nature? We don't want it until somebody says you can't have it. And then we want it. And the law is the same way. The law told us in, in Romans, coveting is a sin. And Paul says, I didn't covet until I heard that. And then when I heard coveting is sin, all I wanted to do was covet. So the, all the law can do is declare you guilty. But it can't remove your sin. And so we continue on verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now again, for, for review, when we speak of the law, 
that is no longer, no longer binds us. We're speaking of the Mosaic law. And really, not the moral law. How many know the Ten Commandments still apply? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. That still applies. But that is the law of Moses as well. But it's the moral law. And we know this. This is important to understand. Whatever law in the Old Testament was affirmed in the New Testament, we are still bound by. And so when Jesus said, thou shalt not murder, he took it even further. Thou shalt not hate your brother. But by doing that, Jesus took the Old Testament law and made it New Testament law for us. So there still is a, a moral law that we are to follow. And so when, law, when the word law is spoken of in, in a pejorative way, in a negative way, it's really speaking of that ceremonial law. When I went to Israel, we went to a McDonald's. I, I probably told you the story. McDonald's. You know I love McDonald's. i got to tell you something. I've asked people not to give me gift certificates to McDonald's because I cannot resist. Talk about the sinful nature. And so somebody gave me a McDonald's card and I thought, oh my goodness. And so usually, you know, it's $5. You can't even get anything, a full meal for $5. It was a $50 gift card. I want you to know that you're partly responsible for my problem, my addiction. And so whoever gave me that $50 gift, bless you, but don't do that no more. Because I can't control it. And so, oh, I was, I was lost there for a second. Went on a rabbit trail, couldn't find my way back, but I found my way back. Israel. So we went to McDonald's in Israel and I was so disappointed. I wanted, I was so fired up because it had been a week before I'd had any American food. But in Israel, they do not serve cheeseburgers. And the reason is, is because in the Mosaic law, it says, do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. And so that's it. Now, now that's dietary law. We're not bound by dietary law. Book of Acts, remember Peter? The sheet came down with all kinds of clean, unclean animals. God says, get up and eat. He says, I've never eaten that stuff in my life. And God says, get over it. You're not bound by that law anymore. And it led him to go to Cornelius' house and, and bring salvation. And that's how we came in as the Gentiles. But they, this, is, this shows how legalism functions. There's a law, by the way, that we're no longer bound by. The New Testament makes it very clear. We're not under the dietary laws. Now, those laws may be better for you physically, but we're, they, don't, they don't do a thing for you spiritually. And... As a result, people that are Orthodox Jews will never mix dairy with meat. And so you can't, you can't even get a cheeseburger. I'm telling you, it's not the same. Quarter pounder with cheese without the cheese just isn't the same. And so I'm just so glad I, that I'm not under law that I can eat a, cheese, a double quarter pounder with cheese, even the double quarter pounder with cheese. That's even more awesome. So... When we're talking about the law, it's that legalistic. And so that's what happened. There was just a mention, do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. It calls it a kid. And from that, the, the rabbis carried it to an extreme and forbade any mixture of meat and dairy. And that was not what the law was intended to do. 
Most likely, why would God require such a law? Most likely, it was some type of ceremony of the Canaanites that was wicked. That they would, they would cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. So there were, there were laws that God gave that were really localized because of what the heathen did. And so we will always want to look to this. And there's, there's an issue I could bring up, but I don't, I don't want you getting mad at me, uh, you know, right now. I just, you know, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten, you know, and, and I've got a $50 card burning in my wallet. No. But that's how we know. Okay, you read the Old Testament. There's a lot of interesting laws in there, right? You're not even supposed to mix certain thread material. And, and so you say, does that apply today? Well, if it's not affirmed in the New Testament, no, it does not apply. Now, the moral law still applies. And so that law is that legalism that, you know, even in the Sabbath, they made it legalistic. The Sabbath was made for us to give us rest, and they made it work, harder work. So everybody understand when we talk about the law, the law kills, we're talking about that legalism that no longer applies. Okay, let's look at verse 24 in the NIV. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. King James. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh within with the affections and lusts. Amplified. And those who belong to Christ the Messiah have crucified the flesh, the godless human nature, with its passions and appetites and desires. New Living Translation. Those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Message Bible. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. Wow, that's, that's more expansive. Number two. The reason believers are to no longer live a sinful lifestyle is because that lifestyle was crucified when we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. All things have become new. We're a new creation. And so the flesh, that, that sinful part of it, the NIV uh, translates it sinful nature. King James calls it the flesh. That has to, those passions, those sinful desires are to be crucified when we come to Christ. Look at Romans 6.6. 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Again, remember the whole point of the book of Galatians is freedom. It's all about freedom. And so we have been, and, and the, sinful, the practice of sin is bondage. It's not liberating. It's bondage. And so we crucify that flesh so that we can be free. Now, letter A, like any crucifixion, Death is guaranteed, but not necessarily immediate. The Romans had perfected the most vicious and painful 
means of execution of any other empire. Crucifixion was the ultimate torture. Now, you sometimes, in fact, well, let me tell you a story. So we got married, 1984, and Julie and I went to Victoria Island, Canada. Beautiful. Got to take the ferry from Port Angeles. And so we, there's beautiful gardens. But what I liked was the wax museum. And in, in the basement of the wax museum, they had different types of medieval tortures. And I was fascinated. I know, pray for me. That was a long time ago. I'm better now. But I was just fascinated. Like there was that pendulum thing with the big blade on it. And each time it would swing, it would go an inch lower and an inch lower. So of all those torture instruments, the crucifixion was the worst on the human body. Because you were, you were nailed in your feet, and so you would hang from your hands, and your lungs would start to fill with fluid. And so you would have to stand up to breathe. You'd stand up on that nail to take a few gasps of breath, and then you'd have to hang from your hands again. I mean, there's a whole a medical doctor wrote out what crucifixion would be like, the, the, the horror of it. And what happened is it sometimes took people days to die. They would hang on the cross for hours, sometimes even days. It was horrific. It kept you alive enough to torture you. And that's why, because the Passover was coming and they were going to break the legs of the thieves because they could no longer push up to breathe, so they suffocated. They drowned in their own, in their, the fluid in their lungs. But with Jesus, they stabbed him with a spear. And so they, they accelerated the crucifixion because it could have been days. So the reality is, is this. The flesh needs to be crucified, but how many know it, that thing is hard to kill? It, it doesn't happen immediately. It, it takes a lifetime and even then, it's not until we meet Jesus that we're completely free. Look at Luke, New, <laughs> easy for you to say, Luke 9, 23. Then Jesus said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We all bear the cross daily. We take up that cross daily. And we crucify that flesh daily. And it's just part of our life that we, we all carry across. And sometimes that, you've heard the saying, it's, you know, it's my cross to bear. We've all been given a cross to bear as Christians. That means something that is a struggle. It may be suffering. We all have some kind of cross. And beware of envying somebody else's cross. Yours fits you perfectly. And I know sometimes we think we've got, you know, the 500-pound cross and somebody's just carrying a little gold one on their shoulder. But you have no idea what cross people bear. And so just the reality is we bear a daily cross. We crucify the flesh daily. 2 Corinthians 4.10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. When we accept Christ, that flesh is put up on the cross. But that flesh does not die right away. Letter B, 
Therefore, though the sinful nature has been crucified, we still struggle with its influence. And we will till we get to heaven. I'm not excusing sin. I'm not excusing the sinful nature. But the reality is, now we are to grow and we conquer more and more of our sinful nature. Maybe the sins that used to really plague us no longer plague us. But how many of you know every human being sins every day? It can be a, a criticism or it can be gossip. It, it may not be a big sin like adultery, but it could be a sin of lust. And so, and I'm not excusing that because our goal is to be like Jesus, even though that won't happen in this life. Let her see, and, and this is the danger of the law. We try to use the law to help us overcome sin and it doesn't work. You need grace. Grace Titus 2, 11 and 12, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It's not the law. It's grace that helps us overcome sin. Because it's all God. It's all his power. It's not our flesh. Okay, are you with me? Okay, we're moving on. Now, this is something uh, I didn't come up with, but I thought is, no, okay, never mind. That's later. Let her see, though we will not entirely be free from the desires of the sinful nature in this life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, those desires no longer have to control us and rule us. Really, there is the power of the Spirit to break the power of the flesh. We have to access it. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We no longer live. Christ. That is the goal of the Christian is to eventually become less and he will become greater, just like John the Baptist said. The goal is that, that, we would, that, that Jesus would be more alive in us today than he was yesterday because we're crucifying that flesh. We no longer live. Christ lives in us. That's powerful. We studied that a few like months ago when we were in Galatians chapter two. Now this is what I was talking about. This, is, this gives us the idea of sin. Letter D, we have been saved from the penalty of sin, which is death or hell. If you've accepted Jesus Christ, I want you to know your sins are forgiven. There is no judgment for sin for the believer. Now, there is judgment for sin for the unbeliever. It's called the great white throne judgment. We are judged at the mercy seat, the uh, judgment seat of Christ. That's for our works, not for our sins. There is no purgatory. You cannot, if, there, if you can pay for your sins in purgatory, then Jesus died for nothing. Jesus died and broke the penalty of sin. He rose from the dead. He's the one that overcame death, hell, and the grave. And so this is, this is liberating. You as a believer in Jesus Christ will never be judged for your sins in heaven. Now we will be judged for our works that we did for the Lord. And that can be humbling. But as for our sins, we are forgiven. And that's why the Bible says there will some that get to heaven as by fire. In other words... There's a smoking section in heaven. 
So it's those that barely made it through the fire and all their hair is singed off and they're, you know, they're smoking. So that's the smoking section in heaven. My mom used to say, smoking is not a, smoking won't send you to hell. Let's see, yeah, smoking won't send you to hell. It'll just make you smell like you've been there. <laughs> anyway. So we, we've been saved from the penalty. We are being saved. We are in the process of being saved from the power of sin. It's been broken, but it still controls us. And we're, we're gaining victory over the power of sin. Amen? We're gaining victory day by day, grace by grace. From, from, from glory to glory, we are being transformed. And then the third part of this, and we will eventually be saved from the very presence of sin in heaven. Can you imagine the day where you'll never, ever have a sinful thought again? That there will be no evil. There'll be no envy. There'll be no jealousy. All that'll be gone. Is that just incredible what heaven is going to be like? That there will be no sin ever again. So we've, we've been saved from the penalty. We're being saved from the power. And we will be saved from the presence. There will be no sin in heaven. Can't wait. Verse 25. Actually, let's see. I want to see if we want to keep going. I think I can finish this. Verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us live in step with the Spirit. King James if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Amplified. If we live in the Holy Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. If by the Holy Spirit we have our life in God, let us go forward walking in line, our conduct controlled by the Spirit. New Living Translation. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading. You see, walking, leading, all of this principle. Message. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a, a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implication in every detail of our lives. I know I copied the same scripture from the previous one. Sorry about that. Number three, the best way to learn to stop doing wrong is to start living right. Letter A, it is not enough to stop practicing the acts of the sinful nature we must also start producing the fruit of the Spirit. When I went to my 10-year high school reunion, there was a girl there that had gotten saved. And I was so amazed at the change in her life, change in her countenance. Instead of the sinful nature, she was now bearing the fruit of the Spirit. I hadn't seen her in 10 years, but what a difference the fruit of the Spirit making someone's life. It was, it was wonderful. I kept telling her, I said, I can't believe you got saved. And she said, yeah, James, God saves even the worst of us. I said, I didn't mean that. I was just, I was just so amazed. The change in your life. How many know you can't argue with a changed life? God loves us as we are, but he, does, he accepts us as we are, but he loves us enough not to leave us that way. He changes us. And I was so amazed. And I pray that people could see that of us. Amen? They could see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Maybe there was a time you struggled with anger or envy or, or jealousy, and, and, you, and, and now that's out of your life. 
And, and I'm telling you, when sin is out of your life, it's liberating. It's horrible to be angry all the time. It's horrible to, to have jealousy and all of those things that, that bind us. Drunkenness. Those are all acts of the sinful nature. So, letter B, you, you know I like to do word study. Keep in step is stoicheo in the Greek. It means to walk in a straight line. To arrange in a row, to march with military rank. So when it's saying that we are, to, we are to walk out our life, keeping in step with the Spirit, it's like we lined up behind the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you remember, uh, some of you may have experienced this, picture day in school. I remember distinctly picture day in elementary school, hated it. Because they would always make you line up from the tallest to the shortest. And I would just, when they'd say that, I'd just go to the back of the line because I knew where I belonged. And we would march like that to go get our pictures taken. I'm still scarred by it, as you can tell. I've tried to work through it. I, I know, I know. Romans 4.12. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith. Same Greek word. To give you an idea of what this means to walk after the Spirit. Walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Letter C. Keeping in step with the Spirit means following the Spirit's leading without wavering or taking detours or shortcuts. Verse 26. We'll conclude with this. NIV, let us not become conceited. Provoking and envying each other. Uh, verse 26 in the King James. Let us not be desirous of vainglory. Provoking one another, envying one another. Amplified. Let us not become vainglorious and self-conceited, competitive and challenging and provoking and irritating to one another. Knock it off. Envying and being jealous of one another. New Living Translation. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. The message. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other. How many of you know when we compare, it stirs up envy? That's why sometimes going on Facebook is dangerous. You know, everybody's showing their vacation slides. You know, they're, you know, it's somewhere beautiful and you know, all, all we can afford is to go to Taft. But Taft is beautiful in its own way. And so sometimes you get on Facebook and you can't, you, you, you're comparing yourself with someone else and then you start to have envy. Message. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. I like that. Now, for me, I usually don't compare myself and think I'm better. My problem is I compare myself and feel like a failure. And then both are wrong. Both are unhealthy. God does not want us to compare ourselves to other Christians. Our goal, our model is Christ. That's who we are to model ourselves after. 
So what does this word conceited mean in the Greek? It's kinodoxos. It's a compound word. Two words mashed together to form another meaning. Kino, no, it's not Vegas game. Kino is translated empty or vain. And doxa means glory or praise. I'm wondering if I should tell you this story or not. I'll save it for another time. <laughs> Sorry. It's a good one, too, so hopefully I'll remember it. No, it's not a North Dakota story. It's a Tonopah story. Because so. in, in Nevada, I mean, there's slot machines and gambling kino everywhere. I can't tell you the story. Anyway, <laughs> kinodoxos. Combined, letter e, A, it means vainglory, empty praise, false pride, full of empty boasting, to have a false estimate of oneself, one who talks big. This compound word is only used once in the entire New Testament right here in Galatians. And so letter B, conceit promotes competition and comparison, which provokes envy. And envy is one of the acts of the sinful nature. And so... This is why we need to walk in step with the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit. Because letter D, when we walk in the Spirit, we won't think too highly or too lowly of ourselves. Uh, you've heard me say this before. The Bible says, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. There is this, you know, there's a certain love for ourselves. The problem is we either love ourselves too much or too little. And usually that comes by comparison which stirs up conceit. I mean, you know, there's a false pride, but there's also a false humility. I remember, I'll tell you a story of my youth. A girl moved in across the street. She was cute. I was in seventh grade. And I was starting to talk to her, and I started to belittle myself, you know, make, you know, criticize myself. She goes, oh, what are you doing, fishing for compliments? She nailed me, <laughs> Because she was right on. I was saying something bad about myself so this cute little girl would say something good about myself and it totally blew up in my face. Because that's false humility. There's false pride and there's a false humility. God wants us... Tearing yourself apart is not humility. Amen? Being negative about yourself, criticizing yourself. I'm such a loser. I'll never mount to anything... That is not true humility. That's a false humility. And so we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. And letter E, we close with this. When we walk in the spirit, we won't purposely stir up strife and dissension or covet the possessions or positions of others. Again, the fruit of the spirit sets us free from all that. All that bondage, all that trap. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Thank you for your word. Wow. You teach us how to live. And if we will only live this way, we will be blessed. And so, Lord, I just pray you would help us walk in line right behind the Holy Spirit. Not wavering, not getting off track. We want to follow you, Jesus. We want to walk in your footsteps, Lord. And so, Father, I just pray you would show us how. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll continue on next week. God bless. Thank you for joining us today. Our worship service begins at 1030 every Sunday. 
You can join us in person or online. We broadcast live on both Facebook and YouTube. We would love for you to join us and be our guest this Sunday. Our address is 4901 California Avenue, Bakersfield, California. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day. 